Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Real Estate Rundown. Today, I have the special privilege of bringing Lane Kawaoka onto the show. For those of you guys that don't know, Lane has been in the multifamily space for quite a few years and actually has been involved in both the passive and the sponsor side of investing, amassing a portfolio of about 3,500 units all over the United States. So guys, give me a warm welcome here to Lane Kawaoka. How are you, Lane? Aloha, Shannon. Good morning to you. <laughs> so, Lane, let's get right to real estate because that's why we're here. You know, one of the things that those of us that know your story, we know that you transitioned out of a professional career as a civil engineer with a lot of schooling and you've transitioned into a passive investor. Give us that story. Yeah, so I graduated college back in 2007. Um, up until then, always been brainwashed to go to school, I worked at that job for 40 years as a construction supervisor, didn't like it. And again, following that whole uh, mainstream financial dogma of going and buying your own house to live in, that's what I did. But because I was traveling on the road all the time, it it didn't make sense because I was was only home on Saturday. So I just started to rent it out. So that $350,000 house that I, I was living in by a single guy all myself, I started to rent it out for twenty two hundred a month, and then the mortgage payments were sixteen hundred a month. And to a young twenty something year old kid, that was a lot of beer money. And I was like, "Shoot, I got to do this again right. and again and again, and and uh, get up, get out of the rat race." That was where it all started. I didn't know anything about rent to value ratios, primary, secondary markets, none of that. I just knew that I was making a little bit of cash flow, and I just had to rinse, wash, repeat. How hard was it, Lane, to change your mindset from being someone that had been taught your whole life that you go to school, you get a good job, you know, you get an engineering job? I mean, that's a great job. I have friends that are engineers. They're really smart. They do very well for themselves. But typically, you you know, you're working for somebody else. Did you struggle with getting your mindset switched? And if so, how did you change that to, to make yourself the entrepreneur you are now? Yeah, I mean, I never had like, you know, parents who did this type of stuff. I never had any family members who did rental properties. But to me, it was just like made so much sense, right? Like, well, I have like a few hundred dollars of cash flow every month, even though some stuff breaks along the way. And then just happens like clockwork. That was where I tried to get a little more educated, started reading the books, the podcasts. And then I think a key for me was getting around other people doing it too. And I realized the stuff wasn't that hard and I could scale it. I could see the path forward. And that was where the the motivation happened. And my goal for the next maybe five, 10 years was just start, just keep stacking these chips up, these, these cash flowing properties so that I could replace my income. That was, that was goal number one. How long did that take you lane from 2007? Well, I eventually did quit my job. I mean, a couple of years ago. Um, but the problem was I probably stayed in it a little bit too long. Um, I'm not one for like, you know, jumping, jumping off the cliff and taking the dive, the entrepreneur dive for a lot of us. And, you know, like a lot of my clients that I work with were high paid W2 workers, right? Our highest and best use are working at the day job. And that's kind of what we like to focus on, on on this portion of the show is just you've created passive income and you've got a real knack for doing that with people who are working professionals who are already busy. They're already working 60 hours a week. They don't really need a second job. How have you found that successful niche where you're able to get 
high income earners like yourself into that passive income stream? Well, I kind of like it because nobody else does it, right? Everything else out there is for, you know, for mainstream folks who make under 50 to 80 grand a year. Um, a lot of free internet forms, the local RIAs are all just a bunch for broke people. Let's be honest. I mean, people that go to local RIAs, either an uh, experienced flipper who's trying to get, you know, these new people to lend them money, or the new people are just like trying to, they're trying to get unbroke. And they hear real estate is a great way to get rich, which it is. But what they don't realize is, you know, this the way I look at it, it this is the long game. This is the get rich slowly kind of game. Right. Um, you know, I mean, my first, I bought my first property in 2009. I didn't buy my second property, which is a duplex until 2012. And then you just kind of buy one after one after one. Around 2015, I had 11 properties. Um, that was where I started to go out of state, um, bottom in Birmingham, Atlanta, Indianapolis. You know, like you hear a lot of these turnkey um, properties. Uh, had a property manager that managed, you know, three of them in, in the three states. But, um, you know, I realized it wasn't really scalable to own rental property. And I I, fa- I learned that firsthand. But, but the most important thing was I started to up-level my network. So I started to join different masterminds. And I found other doctors, lawyers, engineers. And they were all doing the same thing I was, but maybe 10, 20 years older than myself. And they were all saying, yeah, we all bought rental property at one time. But we all laugh how it was such a pain in the butt to operate them and just wasn't a scalable investment strategy. Right. And, and you hear that a lot, but it's kind of like, it's kind of like your college 101 course, right? You kind of got to take it to appreciate what true passive income is and being in the limited partnership where you're not having to deal with toilets and trash. Um, but when you got to that place, you know, you're talking about turnkey rentals. What, what do you mean by that? Yeah, so turnkey rentals is a very like loose term, right? Some people will define it as, you know, a proper a rehabber will take a property and maybe maybe let's just call it forty grand. Like it's kind of a trash property. They'll buy it distressed, and then they'll maybe put in maybe thirty to eighty grand into it, and they'll fix up all the major components: the roof, the HVAC, the they'll paint it. Surely they'll put in new flooring. They'll put in maybe. Maybe they'll resurface the cabinets. Maybe they'll put in completely new cabinets, right? I mean, they're putting a lot of work into this. Now they're, they're making it more for a rental-grade tenant, and they're buying in these rental-grade areas. So they can, they can do all this for you, and even they can put a tenant in there for and they can even manage it for you if they have the, the property management in-house. So for an unsophisticated investor who lives 2,000 miles away or even past the ocean, I mean, it's a great option to start off with. Um, of course, they go to all the internet sites and they go to, you know, all these do-it-yourselfers and they say, oh, you're overpaying. But like, you know, I mean, for high-paid working professionals, to me, that's the way to get started. You know, maybe maybe your second or third one's not going to be a turnkey, but at least you can, this teaches you how to swim on the sh- shallow side of the pool. And then you can, you can ramp it up yourself if you want. There's so much truth in that too, because, you know, while you're not having to do the the manual labor, you're, you're still able to get involved with the income stream and the tax side of things. As you know, the tax side of, of this game is as important to play as the income side 
because that's really what offsets with W-2 people like yourself. The tax game is really, really advantageous. What were some of the things that you found to be super great about real estate once you got into it from a tax advantage? When you're dealing with single family homes, you're just taking the normal depreciation. So one twenty seventh of the value of the, the building every year, which is okay. But the, it gets really exciting when you start to get into these um, LP deals where they do it's large enough where you can do a cost segregation and aggressively write off sometimes like a third of the building value all in year one. Um, so, you know, investors, you know, if they put in a sample investment of a hundred grand, I've seen people get anywhere from 60 to over a hundred thousand dollars in the first year as passive losses. Um, it's crazy. <laughs> Here's kind of where it gets really complicated and I'm not a CPA, but I've done this a lot of times and, <laughs> and I, and I, I tell folks that they need to learn this for themselves so that they can guide their CPA or tax attorney the right way or figure out when they need to find a new one. But you know, you're, these, these deals are gonna kick off a lot of passive losses, but you as a W-2 employee may or may not be able to take it. What you're able, what you need to do is you need to take it um, on, as W-2 worker, you need to be a real estate professional. Right now, today, I don't have a day job. So that's there's kind of a two-part test. Number one, you cannot have a full-time job. You can possibly be working a half-time job and still qualify to be a real estate professional. But even though you qualify on the hours, you need to have 750 hours of active participation in your portfolio. So that's, that's the harder one. And every situation is different, but that is the conversation you need to be having with your CPA. Right. And you need to point them in the right. You need to force them to have that conversation because I don't know about you guys, but when I was a W2 employee, I always just did it the easy way. Right. <laughs> and that's no different from any other um, professional, even CPAs. You can't you can't just go to a CPA and have them, you know, do it for you. Really, you have to tell them and force them. And you know, which is the right way, which is usually the harder way for them to do their job and maybe a little bit more. I don't know, riskier from a tax audit standpoint too. So now you can kind of see why you have to kind of force feed and take and be empowered yourself. But, you know, today what I'm able to do as a real estate professional as I, because I'm actively working into my projects and deals, I'm able to take these passive losses, which I have hundreds of thousand or you know, a few hundred thousand dollars at least. And if I want to pay less taxes, I can use that to offset my active income if I want. But I normally, you know, for folks that are under $150,000 adjusted growth income, AGI, usually the sweet spot is to be around 10 to 15%. But for the, our doctor clients, you know, they're around 300,000 AGI and above, certainly above, probably about 20 to 27% is a good overall tax rate. But yeah, I mean, you know, like a lot of guys move to Puerto Rico like yourself, but I don't know when you're paying, when you're real estate professional status and you're able to figure, you don't need to, you don't barely pay any taxes. I mean, last year I paid like 4% effective tax rate. It's crazy. You said something there about training your CPA. I, I think that's a question that I get. That's probably one of my top five questions that people ask is how do you find a good CPA that, that knows all this real estate? And I think your answer was similar to mine. You don't. 
you find the one that you got and you train them, which means that you're doing the research, you're doing the digging, you're coming up with the tax solutions that you're talking to them about because accountants put stuff in boxes. And if you tell them to put it in this box, they will. But if you don't, they'll put it in the easiest box for them. Yeah, I mean, most times it's not like, I think 80% of them won't do any of this stuff. They want to just do it the lazy way. And it's typically they've had their practice a while, but I get it. If you're more established, you don't need to do this type of stuff, right? You don't need to change your ways. You don't even need to read the latest tax changes that comes out every couple of years or so. You know, I think the thing is you need to find a CPA who is willing to do it, number one, because you can educate them all they want, but at the end of the day, they're the one that's sort of like stamping and sealing. And secondly, you need to do it that they're able like the way I look at these guys is they're sort of like just contractors. I mean, they're just the one filling out the paperwork, right? There's different right. methods for why you would fill it out a certain way. That's where I think you as the investor need to be just as empowered as them and know these type of things. You don't need to know which forms to do. That's their job, right? But you need to generally know what you're kind of be doing with your situation. I mean, yeah, I give my clients referrals all the time, but I give them a big caveat saying, hey, you need to learn this stuff and here are the things to ask and the things, you know, to guide them to the way. So yeah, for refer let's like property managers, people to work with, it's all referrals first, right? But even if you get a good referral, they should just go to sleep on you, right? And do it the lazy man style. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So uh Lane, once you've once you've kind of in your mind graduated from, you know, realizing that maybe single family homes and duplexes is going to take way, way too much of your time, way too much effort. And you've stepped into deciding that you really want to be part of the LP and a syndication. What are some of the tips that you have, the advice that you would give people on how to come up with a good plan to vet your syndicator, how to know when you've got a good deal? What's the kind of advice you're giving people with that? For me, it's 50% the numbers and 50% the person. So how do I vet the person? It's all through my personal network. I don't work with anybody who I don't know. I need to know somebody personally that has invested with them in the past. That's the gold standard. And I know a lot of people, they don't, they don't know anybody who's doing this. So I've gotten burned. You know, I, I, got, I got a referral from some people who I didn't know before. And that person ran off with my money. Right. <laughs> so lesson learned. Right. Don't do that. Right. And you find a lot of right. people, they're like, oh, you know, so-and-so is good, so-and-so is good. But you find that they've never even invested their own damn money with the person, right? So the gold standard is right. somebody that you trust that doesn't have a skinny skin in the game, you know, not going to get a referral fee because that's illegal anyway for you know, in terms of securities world or anything like that. Um, but then the other right. half is, you know, like I say, people lie, numbers don't lie. You, if you're able to get the P&Ls and the rent rolls and run your own comps, you can run it through you know, your own model, your own spreadsheet and figure out what you're working with. And that's what I'm able to do. And that's why my method is I get all that stuff first and I figure out what kind of assumptions this operator is using, such as what kind of reversion cap rate are they doing? Um, you know, are they doing like a half a point or more? That's, you know, that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for that expansion on that reversion cap rate. I want them to assume that the market is getting worse. I don't want them to assume that the market is staying the way it is or getting stronger, right? I want these things to be truly conservative instead of just repeating the damn word again and again and again. I want to, I want to know how it is. Um, another big thing is like, I want to see, I don't want to see rent increases of 3% or more. 
as a rent escalator assumption, right? And a lot, you know, just take those two things. If you were to underwrite it the right way, that affects the bottom at the, the number at the bottom of the spreadsheet, right? So that's why I keep forcing folks to look at, like, what are the assumptions? Who cares if they're promising 100% in five years? If you normalize their assumptions, you, you know, you increase the reversion cap rate or you decrease their annual rent escalators to 2% instead of three and a half, you know, that 100% return in five years could quickly go down to 40% return in five years, right? So those are kind of the two right. ways. Verify the numbers by checking the assumptions and then only work with people you know, like, or trust. You know, a lot of people are relying on the GP and, you know, as we've seen in any market when it heats up, um, you know, there's been a lot of people join the party that may or may not have the experience in dealing with the product type. I've got a, an ex-banker friend. He always tells me, you know, you can make the spreadsheet say anything you want. You just have to be smart enough to understand what they're trying to say in the spreadsheet so that you can reverse engineer it. <laughs> so that you can understand, like you said, that a 3.5% right? Three and a half percent of rent assumption, that may have been true for the last couple of years, but, but I don't think that that's going to play out in 2020, right? Yeah. And yeah. if you're looking at the long game, you're going to assume a 3%, maybe a 2%. If you get down to the end of it 10 years from now and you've achieved a three and a half, nobody's going to be mad at you for over-delivering. It's all about like just making sure that the deal is is underwritten the right way. Most investors, I would say 80 to 90% of LP investors don't have a clue how to do this, right? And they're investing off the pitch deck and anybody can make a PDF pitch deck these days, right? I mean, the whole key is to just get a designer to do it for 50 bucks and make it look pretty polished. I would say like, Go up, and I, I got a very similar story to yours, right? Like an investor, you know, it's like, oh, how wouldn't you like about the deal? I was like, well, you know, like this one was 100, 5% over six years. And this other one was, you know, 95% over five. And I was like, all right, well, what did they use for assumptions, right? And sure enough, they're using those high assumptions and lower reversion cap rates. And I'm like, well, what did you want to see, man? Because I can change this number, I can change this number, I can change this number, like, what number do you want to see at the bottom page? You know, we can change it however you want. Right. And when you get to that point, it's not based on reality, it's based on giving somebody the warm fuzzies, which by the time you get there in 10 years, they're not going to know the difference because they're not going to remember the pitch deck, but it's all about integrity. You know, like you said, you've got to know the guy, you've got to know somebody that's invested with them. You got to know somebody that's made money with them. You've got to know their past because that's going to dictate what your future is going to be with them. Operators, after they've had a few good deals, what you call this is sponsor creep. Fees will start to go up. Splits will get um, better for the general partner, not for the LPs. And what's worse is sometimes the underwriting standards will start to go down. It happens all the time. And if they have a good investor base because they've made the first round of people happy, good for them, right? They can do that. But if you're a new passive investor looking to go into sadly underwritten deals, that may not be aligned with what you're looking for. It's, it's hard because be, this, these what, things aren't commodities, right? These, every deal, even from the same sponsor, is different. It's not like buying an Apple right. stock. Everyone is different. And unless you're able to get into the underwriting, you're not going to be able to compare apples to apples. When you start asking the questions, sometimes the underwriter or the GP 
can't quite answer them. And, you know, another big, huge red flag is if they get defensive about their assumptions. When they're trying to tell you that, well, this is what's, what's happened historically. This is what we're going to be able to do. This is, there's no problem. That's telling you that they're selling instead of simply presenting you with the opportunity for you to decide. Or it could be the opposite too, right? I mean, if they got like people lining up around the block because they've done good and they could just, hey man, like we, we always rev- do the reversion cap rate of three quarters of a point. We're way better than most people. Some people are reversing their version cap rate. And this is their numbers. If you, if you can't see it, you know, you'll find out in three to five years when your deal sucks, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and, and, right. and also it could work the other way, right? Some people are really good marketers and they have people lining up around the street to come into their deals. They just put it out there and yeah. these suckers will invest. And you don't know, yeah. right? And, and, and that's why I stopped going to real estate, a lot of real estate conferences, because this is a bunch of new operators. And dude, I can't even tell who are legit these days. So Lane, what are you seeing with, you know, where we're at today with the the world that's changed so dramatically in six months? I mean, you know, what are you seeing that doing what's left of 2020 and what you've got on your plate for deals? Normally deals, they take about like 60 to 90 days to kind of go in the oven before it comes out, pops out to LP investors. Um, In terms of you know, April, May, June, nobody was really going and checking out properties, right? Um, lending right. kind of shut down a little bit. And uh, I think now people are finally kind of getting back out there looking at properties. Yeah, you might see some things come out. Like I think there's a storyline out there that people are going to be going through foreclosures or people that are in uh, forbearance right now are going to get, you know, really in trouble in the next few months after it burns off. That's probably true, but like me personally, that doesn't really apply to myself. If you're looking at properties that 80% occupied or less, then that will possibly impact you or be a, maybe a nice windfall. But for the most part, I'm looking at stabilized properties 90% or more with value add. If a owner had a property and they went to forbearance and they stopped evicting people, they may have a class B property, but after two to three months of, you know, continually not evicting tenants, you quickly train your tenant pool going from a class B to class C or F. And I wouldn't want to buy that in the first place. That's just, that's not my business plan. I'm not saying it's a bad business plan. I'm sure you can make a lot of money doing that stuff, but that's just not me. Yeah. And there's, you know, there's a lot of people that do. So when you're looking at your business plan and what you're putting out there and what you're moving forward with, are are you looking at, improving the property or are you just looking at buying something that's undervalued that you can through better management uh, bring up to market what is your what is your overall strategy yeah so it's got to be 90 percent occupied or more for the Fannie Mae Freddie Mac non-recourse debt but it like you said it's a little bit of both I mean we're not going in there and doing huge upgrades I mean maybe we're working with like a four to six thousand dollar budget per unit so that's new flooring, new appliances, but we're not getting into the big stuff like cabinets and stuff like that, right? Very, very basic stuff. But what we're looking for is maybe a $50 rent bump on just on the management, right? Of course, a $50 rent bump just on, you know, buying an undervalued deal. That's, that's the key, right? That's why we buy one in a thousand deals. Not all of them are like that. But then the force right. appreciation by going in there, doing that, that minor work, basically putting lipstick on a pig, we're able to bump those rents even more, you know, another 50 bucks. So right. that's kind of the model, 
right? And, I mean, it it's to me, I don't. The returns are pretty good. I think. I mean, <laughs> I think it's the one of the best yeah. risk-adjusted returns, right? Because if should should the economy turn on you, you know, you just hold on cash flow, and you've out you have all your capex raised, you're good. You kind of just shelter in place and um, continue your rehabs internally, and you know you can sell at the right time, and you're already in a Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, um, you know, long-term loan. On your inside going in, are you are you sticking with that? 85% loan to value? Or are you, are you raising more funds with that moving into the end of 2020? Um, it doesn't, it, it hasn't really changed from that perspective. You know, I mean, we still try and go in with, we try and get as much debt as they give us, right? As the agencies will give us, um, yeah. you know, that can range from 80 to 70%. Um, the banks are increasing the amount of cash reserves, you know, so we, we kind of just go along with what they say that we need on each, every deal is different, right? Different markets, the banks, it, it can play around plus or minus a few percent points on the debt to income of the loan to value from that perspective. When you see your ability to sell and you're in that Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, uh, non-recourse, you know, 221 product, do you see that there's going to be a, a, a windfall there when you're able to have an assumable debt at 3% and rates have crept back up to six, six and a half. We just closed a deal earlier in the year. It was like 3.2% 15 year term. And there was assumable. So I mean, we might even, if we take a long time on this deal, like we might even be able to have it be assumed with still 10 years, 12 years. I think we're maybe getting a little bit too detailed here, but a lot of times those assumable loans, they'll, they'll be paired with like prepayment penalties. So that's a big thing. I mean, we're, we're in a deal right now where we're ready to exit, but there's just a big, nasty prepayment penalty. You know, normally today, what we like to do is go into a more hybrid loan where it's sort of a, a step down on the, the interest rate or the prepayment penalty should we finish right. early. Back to the people getting into the game. You're right. We're getting a little deep here. I just, maybe those were little personal questions that I have always wanted to ask somebody like yourself. But, but when you're looking at, at a new person that's wanting to get involved in it and they are, they, they've understood the part where they, they know they need to be the passive investor, they've got a great day job. What is some of the, the best reading material that they can get their hands on to understand what their, their easiest course of action is going to be and how to educate themselves to be ready to be the best LP they can be. I think there's not really too many good books out there. I think a lot of this is just seeing live deal flow, right? Which means you're going to write one, right? I I don't like books personally. I think they're kind of boring. Actually, I I have an e-course on this stuff. Um, You know, you click the button and you read a blurb and you click the next button. So I have a syndication, LP investor syndication. That's the way I've created it. But like, to be honest, the best way is just to like, I have people, they just go through a bunch of older deal webinars, right? Like how do you hit in baseball? Well, you just watch some pitches by, right? Different curve balls, fast balls. Right. You just take some live batting practice after a while. But then I think a lot of this is like, you have to expand mm-hmm. your network, right? Because I think when people learn academically, they start to get a skewed uh, perception. And I think they need peers to calibrate themselves. They need to hear what other people have actually invested in the past and saying, yeah, you're, you're fixating on the most times people fixate on the wrong stuff and they waste their time on the wrong stuff. Right. Like, I think we're just talking about like the whole, you know, the yield maintenance and then like the prepayment penalty. Like, dude, don't worry about that. 
focus on the reversion cap rate, the rent increases per year, and do your due diligence on the comps that they're using, right? Don't just take their comps. You right. go look at it a little bit, right? Can they really get 950 for that type of product? That's where the rubber means the road. Right. So I have right. like a little um, LP checklist with, you know, all the questions you want to ask, you know, how long have you been in business, blah, 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 blah. It's kind of like interviewing a property manager and then a little bit of, um, you know, things for to check in underwriting, you know, like you don't want to see anything on the rent increases too high as escalated reversion cap rate. What is full occupancy? What is full economic um, occupancy that you want to be seeing? Um, just so I think from that perspective, as an LP, you're not going to be an underwriting specialist, but you wanted to develop this checklist of your own to be able to ask on like the sponsor's track record and their underwriting to at least spot out the sucker deals. No, that makes a ton of sense. From where you're at right now, looking back on your investing career, what would be the one piece of advice you would give them to, to have accelerated your career? I would say, you know, figure out where you fall on like the net worth spectrum, right? Like if you're under half a million dollars net worth, in my opinion, you should still keep buying rental properties on your own. You're not a passive investor at this point. Um, you either need to make more money or save more money. Um, a lot of guys, they come to me and they, they hear about the benefits of multifamily, multiple roofs, yada, yada, but they're just kind of following the marketing breadcrumbs. Look how I did it. 2009 to 2015, I was just plugging away, buying single family homes, getting my net worth up to that threshold. But if you're a credit investor, you know, you certainly have a net worth over half a million, million dollars. This is where it's at, in my opinion. I thought turnkey rentals were the best thing since sliced bread, but obviously that's changed. And I'm not going to say that I'm not going to change my mind on the syndication stuff, but this is how I, I invest because I've been in groups of higher level investors and the name of the game is to go, you know, 50 grand, a hundred grand into a couple dozen deals. And that's your portfolio. Right. You're, you're diversified with different partners, different asset classes, different locations, different business plans. You know, you're getting the great tax benefits too along the way. That's kind of what I help clients do is the more on the consulting side on the tax side, right? How do you pull it all together with the infinite banking? Because deals is just one part. Deals part is a big part of it. But for high net worth investors, it's just one piece of the puzzle. Well, Lane, we really, again, appreciate your time. Have a wonderful day. Thanks for joining us here on the show. And uh, everybody, be sure and send in your questions so that we can get those to them and figure out where we're going on our next show. Thanks, guys, for joining Real Estate Rundown. We'll talk to you soon.